Welcome back, my friends, to the Mark Claire Show. It's episode number 12. They said we'd never last, but last I have. The Dirty Dozen, we have done it. Got an awesome guest for you today. David Patrick Harry from the Church of the Eternal Logos YouTube channel is joining me to have a little discussion about, well, can you really explain God? Can you prove God to an atheist. We're going to dig into that after we get through his just incredible, incredible journey and story um, that really brought him to his current religious faith in Orthodox Christianity. It's a hell of a conversation. Went almost two hours. You're only going to get 90 minutes of it here. Of course, the rest is reserved for my primo subs, the premium subs, the fans who support this show, who are my lifeblood, who keep this thing going. I am so grateful for each of you who supports me either on Patreon, patreon.com slash Mark Claire Show, uh, over on Rockfin at the Rockfin channel. I'm still waiting for one of you to get on Subscribestar. I'm still posting the stuff there just in case I am on Subscribestar as well. No matter how you support me, even if it's just tuning in and watching and listening, I really do appreciate it. I'm incredibly grateful for you guys who allow me the pleasure of doing this show for you. Uh, Another thing that allows me to do this show for you is my fantastic sponsors at Fox and Sons Coffee. If you're not seeing the video, ah, the light's a little blown out of the bag because it's a bright white bag. This is my two-pound bag, my two-pound Den Blend Dark that I get every single month shipped to my door from my man Stephen Fox at Fox and Sons Coffee because his coffee is just awesome. There's just no other way to put it. I I start every single day Brewing, that's right. Brewing is the word you use for making coffee. Brewing a nice, not just a cup. I brew a whole French press of this puppy every single day. And I mean every single day. Head over to foxandsons.com, not just to get some great coffee, but to support a sponsor of the show, to support this show. Everybody wins. You get great coffee. I help a sponsor of the show. The sponsor gets a customer. It's the circle of life. It's the circle of love. Head over to foxandsons.com. That's F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. If all of this wasn't enough, we got a discount for you. It's discount code MCS Mark Claire Show. Discount code MCS gets you 15% off your order. Again, foxandsons.com. If you need the link, check out the show notes wherever you watch the show. That being said, it is time to get into my conversation with David Patrick. My guest today is the host over at the Church of Eternal Logos on YouTube. Very pleased to welcome David Patrick Harry. David, welcome to my show. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for having me. I appreciate it. Sure thing, David. And uh, before we get into the topic, we're going to try to tackle a little bit today, which is a video you did, How to Prove God to an Atheist. I want to get a little bit more about your, which sounds like a task all on its own, but I want to get to yeah. know a little bit more of your background um, and what led to you forming this channel, the Church of the Eternal Logos. And particularly, I want to touch on how you became an Orthodox Christian. Were you raised that way? Is it something that, came, that you came into on your own? Take it from wherever it makes sense. Okay. Well... Well, that's a lot, and my uh, the description is I'll try to wrap up a long story uh, quickly. But uh, I was not raised Orthodox; I was raised sort of conservative Methodist, um, and I got out of that basically once I got into college. Um, so I started studying uh, as a biology major. Was interested in East Asian stuff. Got a minor in religious studies. And after diving into some of the academic uh, interpretations of the multiple author theory of scripture and the Bible and the similarities between Noah and Gilgamesh and all this different stuff, sort of uh, disillusioned me to my uh, naive Christian upbringing. 
and then uh, spent two summers in China uh, learning Mandarin. I uh, got an academic certificate in Mandarin and uh, was really interested in Taoism and Buddhism. That eventually led to a master's degree at the University of Illinois focusing on early Christianity and psychedelic shamanism, where at that point in my life, I would probably describe myself as spiritual, but not religious, with a large interest in the occult, um, especially the use of psychedelics and um, Gnostic spirituality. And so that was kind of what I did for my master's degree was look at the relationship between the early church uh, that was established through the ecumenical councils and then the various Gnostic traditions of which there were uh, tons that even competed with each other. And that had to do with like the Nag Hammadi library and all that stuff. And that eventually led to then my PhD program um, in Berkeley at the Graduate Theological Union uh, initially focused on people who were spiritual, not religious, and I wanted to look at how and what symbols they appropriated and why they appropriated certain symbols. Ganesha from Hinduism, Thai Buddhist sculptures, uh, sort of uh, Christ consciousness, all this different stuff. I was curious, like, what symbols are most appropriated and why those symbols out of all different religious symbols? And that led to my first semester during my PhD program uh, coming across a book called The Psychedelic Gospels. In fact, I have it right here. Um, and that book then is looking at various uh, frescoes within Western Christianity, specifically France, Germany, Italy, um, Spain, <clears throat> and looking at um, what appears to be uh, psychedelic mushrooms, uh, specifically psilocybin and the Amanita muscaria mushroom. And the author there posits that this was part of the secret history of Christianity and that the original Eucharistic tradition of which Christianity participates in was part of a mushroom ritual. Obviously, that would tie back into the famous book of The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross by John Marco Allegro. And so I started diving into that research and basically came to the conclusion that all the frescoes that presented mushrooms were all historically contextualized. So they all were created uh, between the years of like 900 to the 1300s. So during this medieval period in Europe. Um, and so in regards to it being the ancient mystery or the basis of Christianity uh, per se, uh, even though I was still very uh, supportive of psychedelics and the new age and spiritual, not religious and all this different stuff, perennialism, <clears throat> I certainly didn't believe that this was the orthodox or the official basis of Christianity was inebriating substances because it was so historically contextualized. And so further research leads one to find about the Cathars, uh, the Albigensians, various Gnostic heretics that existed during this medieval period, and ironically occupying southern France, Germany, and northern Italy. And so um, that led to then me thinking, wow, well, I just dove uh, for about six months into all this different research concerning psychedelic mushrooms and uh, particular Gnostic heresies that emerged in relation to Christianity. I wonder if I'll find this stuff in the East, uh, given that those who are familiar with uh, R. Gordon Wasson and his wife, uh, Valentina Pavlovna, they have a book called Russia Mushrooms in History very expensive book to get. It's no longer in print. Uh, you can get a digital copy. But what that book is, is them looking at uh, the sort of etymology and philology of words in relationship to mushrooms and looking at what they would call mushroom philic and mushroom phobic cultures with um, 
the Anglosphere, uh, those cultures that speak English being typically mushroom phobic. So we only have a few words to describe mushrooms, mushrooms, fungus, and toadstool. Uh, so there's basically three terms to describe mushrooms where in the Slavic languages, there's hundreds of words. And so within Slavic culture, it's much more uh, typical for grandmothers and mothers to take their young daughters into the woods and describe which mushrooms we put, we pick these mushrooms for these types of cuisines, these mushrooms for these types of things. And so they'll have a basket and they'll go and pick various mushrooms. Um, so what they described as a mushroom philic culture. And so because of that, I thought, well, geez, if I dive into some of the Eastern Orthodox Christianity, because they have icons, I bet I'll find more mushrooms given the, um, the uh, sort of preconditions of Slavic culture before it was Christianized uh, through Vladimir the Great and all that stuff. So I started to take an Orthodox theology course in Berkeley on the history and theology of the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, which is the the church that then broke off in 1054, was called the Great Schism with the West. And that was due to the Roman bishop uh, wanting to establish what we would consider the papacy, which was not a historical uh, uh, office within Christendom. It was a synodal structure of the church. And so there was based on a consensus, the early church for the first thousand years worked on the basis of a consensus among the bishops. And so when the Pope of Rome or the Bishop of Rome decided that he wanted to uh, really build a sort of uh, empire that that uh, rivaled that of the Eastern Roman Empire over in Constantinople, he partnered with Charlemagne and that was in the eight, that was year 800 and then began uh, creating what we would call the Holy Roman Empire, which was a uh, rivaled empire to the Eastern Roman Empire, which was the Orthodox uh, Christian Empire. And so upon that research, I became quite uh, interested in the uh, intricacies of theology. And so that's what eventually got me into orthodoxy was looking at some of the presuppositions that I had in my worldview, like grounding objective truth, um, did my worldview as a perennial new age, pro-psychedelic, uh, spiritual but not religious individual, could I actually account for objective truth being true? And when I started to look at what is called Logos theology, because the Eastern Orthodox Church is really a sort of theological continuation of the Greek philosophical tradition. So Logos, a term first written by Heraclitus, but really essential and central to uh, Greek philosophy all the way through, you know, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics and even Neoplatonism. And so looking at this development of this concept called logos, logos, the root word for logic, logos was that which unified opposites. Logos was the metaphysical structure to the world itself. Christianity and the Gospel of John uh, begins by saying in arche in ho logos, uh, that in the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was with God and the Logos was God. And so what the Orthodox Church, what Christianity originally did through the councils and what the Gospel of John, John being a disciple of Christ and Matthew, uh, Luke and Mark, obviously not being direct uh, apostles, but uh, converts. Um, John was a direct apostle, believed to be the most beloved apostle of Jesus. And in his gospel, what he's doing is making a claim that the prophetic tradition of the Hebrews of the Old Testament was describing the incarnation of what the Greek philosophical tradition was describing metaphysically in regards to the logos and that these things come together. These two traditions of thought come together in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so 
diving a little bit deeper into that, still being a non-believer when I learned about church history and theology and the intricacies and why orthodoxy is actually a, a totally unique form of Christianity and also a unique religious orientation compared to all religions that exist. We can get into the energy essence distinction, theosis, all this different stuff. But um, having come across all that, that weighed on me. And then eventually, about uh, eight months later, I couldn't deny what I felt to be the truth, which was this Logos theology, that it was, even though it sort of uh, rubbed up against my idea of taking you know, illicit substances, drugs, uh, even participating in, you know, sex uh, experience itself as a, as a way in which we attain a sort of a Gnostic or spiritual transcendence. Um, I just couldn't, I couldn't deny that when I got into the intricacies of the worldview of itself, of its presuppositions, of its metaphysics, its epistemology, and its morality or ethics, that it was just so much more superior or more developed. And I had never realized that Christianity was that articulate and that in-depth and that philosophical. And um, eventually I just converted. Um, and then that was a slow process. Eventually, um, I had a bit of a rough patch in my life where I decided that I didn't want to be a professor, per se, at a university, given the uh, requirements uh, of one's political orientation or things about cultural topics one has to be uh, conducive with to teach at a state university. I decided that uh, this whole goal, this whole journey that I was on from the age of 19 to 30, um, that this idea of getting my tweed jacket, my PhD, my briefcase, telling the kids what office hours to come see me at, like it just wasn't going to work if I was going to continue the self-growth, which was pushing up against a lot of the cultural narrative. This is post-2016, so we see the Trump uh, sort of fracture in regards to the um, Overton window and what was allowed to be discussed and how the, the flipping of the counterculture itself, that now the most rebellious thing you can do is not watch porn, uh, you know, become a Christian, uh, try to live your life as morally as possible, go lift weights, become the most masculine version of yourself. And, and really, that is now the counterculture. And that is what we see the matrix or the system itself being directly in opposition to. And so it was a slow process in which, um, realizing that I was changing, uh, I actually went and did an ayahuasca ceremony. This was the last time I did uh, major psychedelics. This was, was that and, part after you had already sort of embraced orthodoxy then? Well, I was certainly, I wasn't, or maybe not all the way, it, but looking back now, I wouldn't say I was orthodox at that point, uh -huh. but I was certainly reading books. I was certainly interested. Um, I had gone to some orthodox liturgies. Um, I was basically, in a way, still working this journey out. And I was basically like a Protestant Christian, but loved Orthodox theology. So I wanted to basically have uh, my cake and eat it too. So I wanted to not have to belong to the church and not have to abide by all these uh, strictures in regards to behavior or the priest or communion, you know, uh, participating in the church life itself. But I loved the theology and I believed that the theology was true. I believed that it was superior to really any philosophical disposition. And then, um, and so I was basically a sort of semi-Protestant Christian, yet I was all about Logos theology of the Orthodox Church. Did this uh, ayahuasca ceremony, because at the time I was ending a relationship with my girlfriend, I was sort of lost because I didn't uh, know what I wanted to do with my life. I was no longer going to be a professor, and I made money. I actually had a previous YouTube channel I started during my master's degree called Fractal Universe. And Fractal Universe, uh, it still has like 79,000 subs. 
Um, it's a YouTube channel that I would basically take videos and audios of Terrence McKenna, Timothy Leary, Robert Anton Wilson, and then I would add incredible uh, visionary graphics to it. So people could listen to what they're talking about. And then it was almost like a presentation. So you wouldn't just listen to Terrence McKenna's lecture. You would watch the lecture because I have videos and animations throughout the whole thing. And so um, I was doing that and that's how I made money. And that's how I was paying my rent living in California. And also that's where I wanted to stop doing. I actually didn't believe in a lot of the stuff I was still having to put out three videos a week on, on fractal universe to make my money. Relate to that. <laughs> and, um, and so I went to this ayahuasca ceremony because I was ending things with my girlfriend. I was no longer the, the, the life that I saw for myself of being a university professor seemed no longer viable. And the way that I was making money promoting psychedelics in the new age didn't even resonate with who I was at that point anymore. This was in 2019. And so I went to this ayahuasca ceremony with a buddy who's also now uh, an Orthodox Christian. At the time, he wasn't. Uh, again, we were sort of like Christian adjacent. We liked, we were certainly our political orientation, looking at culture, looking at all this stuff was moving us towards what we you know, generally say right of center. And then... Um, did the ayahuasca ceremony and the whole experience for me was um, the ayahuasca actually stopped working after I got mm. what perceived to be was my message. And so it was that the uh, logos is Jesus Christ, that it really he really did live as a historical person. Uh, he really did fuse human nature and divine nature and that this is the basis. Jesus Christ is the basis of what uh, our judgment is based on if we die. Whether and, and, and really, then you can get into all the different religious worldviews, whether it be Egyptian or or whatnot in regards to a judgment after one dies. Uh, for me, it was a vivid experience that it was based on the incarnation of Christ, what we're going to be judged based on. That's why there's a standard is because God had to live as a human to be the sole judge of humanity itself. And then it told me to, it was time in my life to become a carpenter like Christ, that it was time for me, if I was actually going to believe in all this stuff and take it on, it was time to be a builder and not a consumer. And so at the time I was consuming ideas of Terrence McKenna, that was the whole basis of that old YouTube channel was consuming other people's ideas and then producing uh, visuals to it. And so uh, it was very explicit. My experience was that it was time for me to transition the state of life that I was in and that I needed to create and not consume. And that meant me creating my own content with my own voice, with my own purpose, with my own intentionality of what I believed to be true. And that was then uh, Church of the Eternal Logos. It just seemed like that's what I needed to do. Um, and so I, about a month later, uh, started to create three videos a week as Church of the Eternal Logos with just a couple hundred subscribers. Um, and so I've been doing that since the end of 2019. <clears throat> so for about three years now, um, I have tried to put out three videos a week. Uh, talking about philosophy, theology, culture, religion, history, whatever it may be, in relationship to what I believe to be true, and always through the lens then of this Logos theology, which is the basis of the Orthodox Church. So my content isn't exclusive to Orthodox Christians, but it's very explicit that it is um, through the lens of an Orthodox Christian worldview. And so whether we're looking at uh, you know, Jeffrey Epstein or or some of the global elites. It doesn't matter what it is. What I'm trying to do is then talk about the world through a lens in which most people aren't familiar with, which is what I would be the historical church that was founded by the apostles. So that's the long 
version of the <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was the short version I, I know there's a much longer one no that that was yeah. that's that's so that's such a fascinating uh, a story to me for for so many reasons I see a lot of parallels uh, myself there as well but um one thing I, I want to dig into a little bit further there um obviously you were not just promoting psychedelics intellectually like you, you must have partaken in them yourself to be that enthusiastic yep. about them so I'm curious along that end of things did you did you have experiences on psychedelics that that were of a religious nature to you that sort of led you in certain directions when it comes to the new age stuff or Gnosticism? Did you did you did you did you relate that directly to uh, a spiritual experiences that was sort of informing your beliefs at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I started taking psychedelics about the same time that I traveled to China during my undergraduate. And so I was probably like 22 or so. and. um Actually, obviously, was interested in world religions. That's what I ended up getting my undergraduate in, and then my master's and my PhD is in religious studies. Um, and so, yeah, from the from the beginning of me taking psychedelics, the entire point was to dive deeper into uh, the spiritual uh, experience, spiritual rabbit hole, paradigm, whatever you want to call it. And at the time, I thought that psychedelics were basically the leading edge of the of the historical progression of religious phenomenon. And so the as religion, that was my presupposition at the time that, you know, sort of the uh, basic bitch uh, Reddit take that religion are all these man-made social constructions. These guys were just tripping and out that, basically and, and came yeah, up with these and ideas. That all, all of them then are based on personal experience and then they're mm-hmm. just reified with various archetypes and semiotics to sort of mm-hmm. uh, articulate the expressions or experiences that people have. And so... Um, yeah, I was very much interested in high dose psychedelics. So I, uh, you know, like five, the, the McKenna grams dose type, uh, type thing. Oh yeah. Five to eight grams of mushrooms, silent darkness by myself in the dark. Uh, you send know, you acid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was, yeah. And I was all about it. And so I did all these things by myself. I would do them very intentionally. And so I would have what I would describe using sort of uh Buddhist, um, uh, sort of a Buddhist frame is, is a sort of Satori experience is that it's a connecting of dots. And so I would get loaded on mushrooms or LSD and I would sit outside usually uh, by myself in nature and wild things would happen. Animals would appear. Uh, what I would believe to be premonitions of different things would occur. And I would also feel like I could uh, connect dots. And so there'd be, and that's kind of what the general term Satori uh, is referencing in, in Buddhism as a sort of um, moment of enlightenment where things become more clear. And so um, I feel like I would have these Satori experiences sitting by myself in nature uh, on psychedelics. And it was never a sort of addictive thing. It was very much like I wanted to explore the depths of what this was. And so Terrence McKenna was talking about transforming machine elves, various entities, how the mushroom would talk to, to him. And so I wanted to go to those depths. Uh, so I would, w- you know, when I tried DMT, smoke as much as I possibly could. Um, I I was very, uh, just my disposition as a person, I'm pretty intense. Whatever I decide uh, I'm going to do, I'm pretty much all in. And so same was true with the psychedelics. I, I wanted to get uh, as deep into that world as possible. And I believe that I could voyage and I could understand and, and I wanted to communicate with entities. And so eventually, before sort of coinciding with my transition into orthodoxy was 
I was living in Berkeley, California. I had all the drugs that I could want (laughs) in my fingertips and I was taking them and I still would go into these altered states. And honestly, it was disappointing Mm. because it's like, wait, this can't just, this can't be it. Like there just wasn't that much there. It's like, wait, I've done as much as I could and go as deep as I could for about four, four or five years. And it's like, um, I'm sitting there doing my PhD and it's like, well, what, what exactly am I taking from all that? I have some interesting ideas. I've had a lot you know, of mind blown moments, a lot of mind blown, not actually a cohesive like worldview that's coming out of it. Yeah. And like, what exactly am I taking from? Like, am I going to, you know, am I going to build a family with like, what, what is it, mm-hmm. what yeah. is it that I'm wanting and what is it that I'm striving for? And what, what is it that I'm trying to get in contact with and that I'm so intense about? And, um, and that's where I was sort of, I wasn't giving them up because honestly, some of the most ecstatic, fun experiences I've ever had were on drugs. Sure. <laughs> uh, I don't promote drugs anymore, but I'm, I'm very honest about everything. So, um, at the time I wasn't ready to give them up, but I was sort of disillusioned and it wasn't until after taking that class on orthodoxy and then probably six months later for the first time since I was a child, getting on my knees and praying to what I refer to as the Holy Trinity uh, before I went to bed. And that was a domino effect that really started to catalyze the trajectory of which we're really where I'm at now. And so um, prayer was a transformative thing, again, in, in light of doing all these drugs. So there's one point after the learning about orthodoxy and all this stuff that I then got loaded uh, up in the Berkeley Hills on LSD and um, basically had this experience of how orthodox theology matches up with many of the things in which we experience on psychedelics. So, for example, um, you know, the idea that we're all one. Well, in Christianity, we talk about loving your neighbor as yourself, and this is subtly different than we're all one because it maintains the individuality of the person. And this, again, this would be another conversation in regard to the ordo theologiae, the, be- the order of theology. We begin with revelation and then personhood, and this is a whole other thing. But, um, and essentially, it's talking about the same thing, like, like the, the self-service of myself for another person is the way in which then we can create a feedback loop of pure harmony. And that's really what Christianity is talking about by loving your neighbor as yourself, but is subtly subtly different than we're all one because we're not all one person. What are we all one as? Are we all one nature? Okay, we can agree with that. We all have human nature. But what is it that we're all one as? And much of the subtleties of the spiritual but not religious or the new age is that we're all one entity. We're all one person. I think this is actually a demonic uh, process that is trying to get us to give away the fact that individually we're all made in the image of God and that individually we need to develop that individual individuality because we all then have distinct purposes and processes and ways in which we relate to a personal God. And so it was stuff like, so I'm high on LSD. It's like that connected. I was interested on, you know, uh, sacred geometry, fractal mathematics, Mandelbrot sets. Well, okay. If all those exist, how do they exist and where do they come from? Okay, well, they have to have an a priori source, the logos. So then it was like, oh, logos theology, that gives the basis for archetypes. I mean, anybody who's read Plato knows that he's talking about the ideal forms all existing in the logos. Those are archetypes. I don't care if you're talking about Jung, you know, back now we're moving forward in the 19th, 20th century. 
again, Jung didn't have a basis for how they're objectively true and how they maintain their identity and stuff like that. So, you know, there's useful things out of Jungian psychology, but even then he, he was part of the process of really having no basis for making objective claims about structures and things. And so it was like learning, okay, yeah, there has to be the logos for sacred geometry, fractals, aesthetics. Aesthetics itself is based on a particular order. And so chaos and really you see the attack on beauty and aesthetics currently speaking in our culture because it again, aesthetics are based on that there is a correct order. And if there is a correct order, that applies to all things. That applies to truth. That applies to my morality, how I live my life. That applies to society. That applies to everything, theology, religion. And so it was like that connects, um, you know, the idea that God incarnated and he became a man so that we can become gods by grace, which is a unique doctrine called theosis within the Eastern Orthodox Church. Well, the New Age is all about self-divinization. But how do we divinize ourselves? In the New Age, it's about experiences. So you and it's about have doing exact- it here in this sort of material plane. Yeah, exactly. And so it's about, okay, you have experiences. You transgress, you do things, and that then all the experience and then the Gnostic presupposition is that I take in more information, spiritual information, information about quote unquote myself. And this is then the advancement of my spiritual journey. And so I could go on, but it was multiple aspects of like the new age occult uh, worldview that I saw orthodoxy offers a lot of these same things, but it's, it's, it's reinterpreted. It's, it's flipped really from the way that the spiritual, but not religious or the new age structure it. Same thing with like energies. Um, orthodoxy is all about the entirety of reality is an energetic vibratory Mm -hmm. process. Now you hear vibes and energy, you think new age, but no, that's actually original Christianity. And that's how then we relate to God. And that's how we become divinizes through his energies. And so it was like a providential journey that I had learned all this theology. And then the next time I got loaded again on a significant amount of drugs, it was like I had all that to then reinterpret what I was phenomenologically experiencing, which then made me think, well, geez, that seems like it's more true than the way of me just experiencing it, because now all this stuff is not grounded in anything where this worldview over here, though very similar, different it grounds everything in a cohesive way. Whether I wanted to believe Jesus Christ was God incarnate, despite my particular take on that, the worldview itself was so much more cohesive and so much more grounding of its presuppositions. I thought, geez, well, that makes a lot more sense. And that led to really about two months later, uh, I just couldn't deny it. And so that's when I said that I I was going to be a Christian. And that's where that beginning of that sort of Protestant Protestant, uh, ortho theology, but Mm -hmm. Protestant person which then about six months, seven months later led to the ayahuasca ceremony, which then about a month and a half after that led to me going full-time with Church of the Eternal Logos and really advocating an opposition to a lot of the stuff that I did previously. That's not a bad segue into our topic, but I I just do find it really interesting that just from an anecdotal standpoint, so many people that come into orthodoxy, at least like people that I I know of um, and I've spoken to, have gone through uh, a a period of interest in the new age, the occult, and and somehow that sort of, they almost needed to to go through that to get to orthodoxy, whereas I think a lot of people might view like other branches of Christianity might just outright reject that stuff in in sort of a blanket way where we're not even going to talk about that. We're not even going to talk about this stuff, whereas orthodoxy almost just 
it explains it and and addresses that it's there that it, it but but sort of you know puts it in a, in a very different context so i do i do find that very, very interesting and we could probably do do hours on that but you know i, I think you know one thing you kind of got at through there are the idea of the presuppositions and sort of what leads one to believe certain things about the i guess the foundations of reality and the foundations of what we even are out, out here talking about of even having this conversation right now so why don't we just get into what you view as i mean there are there are a few ways you could defend uh, Christianity or defend God, but in, specifically in the video that I'll link to this in the show notes too, you talk about the transcendental argument for God known as tag. So why don't I, I just let you set that up? Just set up what that is, first of all, like what that even means and how that might differ from other arguments for God. And then we can kind of go from there. I'll, I'll kind of ask you some questions, you know, like I'm five and I'm hearing this for the first time. <laughs> okay. Um, so before we even get into uh, the intricacies of the transcendental argument. I'll set up what the transcendental argument and how it's different from different argumentations for um, uh, religious apologetics. So some of these arguments may be uh, they they're basically putting forth that there has to be a creator God. So you can look at, uh, for example, the lo- the argument of contingency that um, if we are uh, we are non contingent entities. Um, or, or God is non-contingent, like God is uncreated. We are created. We have a beginning point. And if we have a beginning point, then somebody, something would have to be responsible for our beginning point. Um, same thing with morality. The law from uh, the, the argument from morality is if there is a moral law, then there has to be a lawgiver. These were these are old um, uh, Christian apologetic approaches. However, they differ from the tra- tag approach in regards to what's called evidentialism. So. They are really operating on the same presupposition that atheism itself is operating on, which is really that we can just observe the world and come to knowledge claims, which is uh, it deals with the philosophical branch of epistemology. How do we come to know anything? And so uh, part of the uh, development of the Western tradition, beginning with scholasticism, is that it was very much influenced by Aristotle. And Aristotle was interested in induction. As opposed to Plato, his teacher, and Plato obviously was a student of Socrates, but what differentiates Plato and Aristotle is Plato posited a priori structures, and then he had then he deduced from those structures from there. So in a way, Plato begins up here with his ideology, the ideal forms, the good, the true, the beautiful. And then if those are true, well, then if the forms are true, now we can deduce into how we're seeing the forms exist in the world. Aristotle, his student, took the inverted approach. He begins with, what can I observe? What can I induce induction from my observations and experience in the world? And then can I deduce from there, extrapolate higher up into then how the world functions and how it relates? So there are two uh, uh, opposite approaches towards knowledge claims, towards epistemology, towards how we come to know the world. Um, And I'm not favoring one over the other. I'm just highlighting that the Latin West, after this great schism, so, um, you know, the original church in orthodoxy, again, this would be another conversation on how it deals with Plato and Aristotle and how it differentiates from Western theology, but just for... Just agree that the 1054, we have the schism. The West is in its own sort of worldview. And so 800 to almost 200 years before the Great Schism, we already have the development of the papacy in Rome and the alliance between Charlemagne and the Pope to basically form a sort of theocratic government in the Holy Roman Empire to dominate Western Europe. 
And so eventually during that period, in, as we move into the 900s and the in the uh, 1000s, we get uh, what's called scholasticism. And scholasticism is a sort of um, intellectual approach towards uh, the world that was developed by the, the Catholic Church that was fat grounded in Aristotle because the Latin West didn't have access to Plato. So after, so as history happened and Rome was sacked and all this different stuff, the capital moves to Constantinople, modern day Istanbul. We have the Eastern Roman Empire. And there was already a language difference within Christianity that the majority of Christianity was Greek-based, but then you had the Latin-based uh, of the Western, which then, of course, grew into the Holy Roman Empire. So they already had a, a language distinction, and the West only had access to the entire works of Aristotle. And so you, somebody like Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s, uh, incredibly important theologian for the Catholic Church, uh, called Aristotle the philosopher. And so because of this, the Western church had the presupposition of that we have to observe the world, and then we can deduce claims from what we observe to truth claims. And so this began with scholasticism, and this was what gave rise to philosophy itself, because philosophy presupposes that this is what we're doing. So we can just observe the world, and then we can deduce logical outcomes from that. That's what atheists are doing. That's what anybody who's already presupposing that is doing. Uh, what later got developed is the presuppositional argument in the really in the 20th century um, by a, a few different Protestants. And what they were accurately highlighting is that um, really we have to presuppose the Bible and revelation to have claims, objective claims about certain things that, that what are, how, if we're just going to begin by observing the world, how do we justify the existence of logic? How do we justify the existence that the law of identity, that this myself, this microphone is going to maintain its identity over time? That is presupposed. We are presupposing that to be the way that the world actually is and that things will maintain its law of identity over time, but we can't observe that. Because if we're just going based on observation, we would have to say, well, potentially it could not. It could not no longer be. It could change. It could. This microphone could turn into a serpent. Who knows? We would say, oh, well, that hasn't happened based on probability. But probability then doesn't allow you to make an entire universal claim because you're just making a probabilistic claim. So you would have to actually observe the microphone turning into a serpent to which, which maybe on, on, on one of your, one of your experiences, you might, you might've seen that, but right. And you would say, well, people, other people have described it. So then there must be, well, I haven't, I haven't observed it. Okay. Well then there, that must be, then truth is limited to my observation, right? So there's a problem here in regards to limiting truth to my observation, but then from that extrapolating into universal truth claims. And so, and that's why then Plato begins with the universal claim of the a priori of the of the realm, the you know the realm of the forms, the ideals, and then we deduce to the particulars. So, do you begin with the universal and move to the particular, or do you move from the particulars, what we experience as people in the world, and move to universal claims of truth? These are two t totally opposite approaches, and so the tag approach, the transcendental argument for God is basically taking a platonic approach towards this as opposed to an Aristotelian approach. So if I wanted to argue on God's existence based on um, how fine-tuned the universe is, 
I'm using that base. So I'm observing the world. I'm observing the human body temperature. I'm observing how we relate to the environment. And these are all inductive claims. And we can do that. But that's an inductive argument. That is me presupposing, again, logic and the law of identity, numbers, uh, mathematics, all this different stuff. I'm, I'm presupposing that to make the inductive argument about how fine-tuned the universe is. So if someone were to say, just um, become really fascinated with physics and start to understand the complexity of molecular systems and quantum physics, and they were so in awe of that, they would maybe induce, through my experience, this tells me there's a creator because it's so complex. That would be sort of like getting to that through induction then. Yeah, and you could, and there would also people be, that if we're just using deduction, they could look at that and say, well, that means that there's no creator. Right. So how are you getting to the idea that there's a creator, or no creator, if we're both observing the same things? Mm -hmm. And that's the problem then by arguing with an atheist using inductive arguments, because you're both standing on the same platform, the same foundational presuppositions. And then you're saying, well, look, here's my pre here. Here's I'm seeing this. And this means that there's a God. And they're saying, OK, well, I can agree that those exist, but I'm saying it doesn't. You're going to you're going to interpret it as whatever you already suppose going into it anyway. At the end. Right. And so there's no, so then how could you really convince an atheist using inductive arguments on the existence of God or really any apologetics regarding any particular religion? You wouldn't be able to, 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 to really change their perspective because you guys are both playing on the same playing field. Mm -hmm. And so it's like playing football or soccer. You're just kicking the ball back and forth. You're, you're on the same field, but there really can never be a true winner. Because nobody's really, or at least from somebody who's using the transcendental argument of God, nobody's actually asking, well, what about the presuppositions that are used to even participate in induction itself? How do you justify those? Mm. And so the transcendental argument, first beginning with like the presuppositions of Bonson and some of these Protestant theologians in, um, in, the, in Protestantism in the 20th century, it gets reworked and becomes a little bit more philosophical. Or if somebody was familiar with my work or Jay Dyer or Father Deacon Dr. Ananias, um, we are, do not use the same presuppositional apologetic approach as the Protestant Bonson does, that everything has to then be in Scripture for us then to, to believe in it or to make any argument from. We make it a little bit more philosophical than just strictures in regards to what's in Scripture. So, the transcendental argument, then, as opposed to the presuppositional argument, which are basically the same thing, but are you so are you arguing from scripture or are you arguing from philosophical categories? And so, the transcendental argument, the way that I use it, the way that Jay Dyer uses it, the way that Father Deacon Doctor Ananias uses it, is that we what we begin with if we're dealing with an atheist is to talk about philosophical presuppositions, not scripture. We don't even bring up scripture because, again, we would argue that that also is basically like in another inductive point mm -hmm. is that if we just begin with scripture, the atheist just says, well, I don't believe right. in scripture. You say it's the word of the God. They say some guy wrote it. And here we are. Here we are again. There we go. We're in the back. We're in the exact same spot as before. So the idea is the best way to sort of engage with an honest atheist, right? Because I have tried to, you know, th this argue, this line of argumentation doesn't work on just any eighth, especially somebody who doesn't understand what you're saying. But we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll unpack what the transcendental argument is and how it sort of works. And if the atheist is honest, how they would be forced, forced based on our own theories of truth and how we come to know things to give up their position of atheism. They could move to agnosticism, like being agnostic, and that would at least 
be a movement in the right direction. But the point of the transcendental argument is to show that to be an atheist is a totally self-defeating point of view. Because, um, so pretending, so we'll just begin pretending that I'm engaging with an atheist. Um, The point is to then ask them, so I'm engaging in a debate of atheists, maybe it's on does God exist or, or is Christianity true or something like that. My line of argumentation would be, uh, yes, because God is the necessary precondition for there to be non-changing, non-physical structures in reality. The metaphysical, what are called philosophical transcendentals. And, and Kant, Immanuel Kant, that's what he was trying to do with um, his 12 categories, was develop the 10 categories of Aristotle. He added two more categories. Now, Kant is arguing that, hey... Um, he believes in the synthetic process that we have a priori categories in our brain. We have sense impression from the world and that that then is human experience. And so because it's a mixture of a priori categories in our experience, we really don't have access to whatever the world really is. Now, uh, I'm, we don't need to go too much deeper into Kant. My point is the only highlight of these, what are called transcendental philosophical categories, the philosophical transcendentals. And so, um, you could ask an atheist, how do how are these things justified in your worldview? If you're an atheist and you believe in the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years, according to, uh, to contemporary cosmology and the people who support the Big Bang cosmology, in addition to Darwinian Wallace theories of evolution, they would believe that the universe came into existence at a single point, at a single instance, for no particular reason, 13.8 billion years ago, and that these processes have been accumulating into more complexity, more complex structures. And that would eventually uh, include the uh, soup of different chemicals, uh, creating stars and planets, and then eventually we get a lightning bolt that hits a, a swamp somewhere in the planet, and we get microbes, and this leads eventually into us today. That, so that is their theory. And if that is true, matter itself is always changing, which is what they presuppose. And if matter is only always changing, how do, can they make a truth claim that is non-changing? Because all they can do is observe something through induction, the world, reality, but based on their own presuppositions, it's always changing. So wouldn't truth always be changing? And wouldn't then an atheist have to basically argue that truth is really just the best we can do with science, but it's always changing because the nature of reality is always under a continual process of evolution, and therefore they cannot make any universal truth claim like saying God doesn't exist or this religion isn't real, because how can you make if that? It's already it's always According changing. You, God could exist one day and not could, exist yeah. tomorrow, maybe. Exactly. That's the problem, philosophically speaking. Now, again, most people say, oh, that's stupid. Like, if, if, he, if he didn't exist yesterday, he's not going to exist tomorrow. Um. This, again, gets into a whole other series of <laughs> arguments, even uh, what, when it goes back and forth with Kant and Hume, um, that Hume, uh, one of the empiricists during this period, uh, the Enlightenment, um, he was a British, uh, Scottish empiricist, but uh, part of the what's called the British empirical school, um, he was an honest atheist and empiricist. And so he said, you know what, actually, the biggest problem for us as empiricists, is that we cannot prove that the sun will come up tomorrow. We have to rely on probability, and and then probability can't be the way in which we prove something if that's the way we're coming to our argument uh, itself. It's a self. It's a it's a circular argumentation. You can't prove uh, 
the thing with the same method that you use to come to the conclusion, because how can you then test it? And so um, Hume was, that was one of the things that Kant says woke him up out of his stupor is that um, the empiricist actually cannot prove anything that's going to continue to be the case in the future. They can only assume that to be the case. Okay, so now the transcendental argument, getting back to my conversation with an atheist, is that what I'm trying to do then, or anybody using this, is get them to say, okay, how does logic exist? Because you're telling me that my worldview believing in Jesus Christ or God is illogical. Okay, fair enough. Let's say, how in your worldview, before we even get to why it's illogical, how in your worldview as an atheist can logic exist because it's non-physical and you're claiming it's unchanging? Right. So you can another way you can ask somebody is two plus two equals four. And will it continue to be that in the future? And if an atheist says yes, you can say, well, how do you know that to be the case? Because you're assuming a reality of mathematics, uh, numerical logic, and you're assuming that that's going to maintain that no ability into the future, but your own worldview says there is nothing that's unchanging. Do you think that's a, a precondition of the atheist worldview that they do all atheists have to be materialists? I guess, I guess is what, is what I'm saying. Cause it sounds like you're kind of equating them as the same thing. Do you, do, do you see that as, as the way that, as that being essentially the same thing, or is it possible to be not materialist, but not a per se or, but while still being an atheist, I guess, or, if that makes sense. Uh, the question would be, well, how would they come to that conclusion? Like, who, where do non-physical structures come into existence that are unchanging? So if you're an atheist and you believe in the Big Bang, you're stuck. You, are, you have to adopt materialism. Uh, because how could there be non-physical things that are unchanging? And something unchanging would have to create unchanging things. So... Um, an atheist, they can have all types of beliefs. They could say they're an atheist and they believe in a pan-psychic universe. I mean, they can say all types of shit. The problem is it doesn't make any sense based on their presuppositions. And so the line of argumentation here is looking at an atheist and looking at numbers. Oh, okay, you believe in the number seven. Can you show me the number seven? Where does that exist? And is it a social construction or is it a discovery of an objective, actual aspect of reality? I believe as a Christian that all numbers, all archetypes are rooted in the logos, which incarnated as man and we being made in the image of God. That's why we're participating in all these higher faculties. Um, and so you ask an atheist, okay, where's the number seven? Well, it's, it's a concept. It's, it's non-physical. Okay. Well, is that always existing? Is it going to, is the number seven going to exist in 2000 years from now and a thousand years from now? Did it exist 4,000 years ago? Oh yeah, of course. So we discovered it then. So we discovered something that is unchanging and non-physical. And the, and the point then of this line of argumentation of looking at their ethics, their morality, their metaphysics, their epistemology, and looking at all these presuppositions that an atheist has is their line of argumentation. And if they picked up on what was going on, they would say, okay, look, yeah, I presuppose logic. I presuppose numbers. I presuppose all this stuff, but you're just presupposing God. And we would say, yes, exactly, exactly, because the way in which there's, you prove something to be true, there's only two theories of truth. There's um, correspondential truth, and that's that something corresponds to the world. So I'm wearing a blue shirt. That's a correspondential truth. That's a truth claim that is observably true based on both of our ends. I'm wearing a blue shirt. We can observe that to be the case. That is called a correspondential truth claim. The other type of truth claim is a, is a comprehensive 
truth claim. How does it, how does um, the uh, comprehensiveness, the, um, how does it uh, coalesce into a worldview? Does it make more sense? Um, because this came up during the end of the 20 or at the beginning of the 20th century with the fall of what's called logical empiricism is that logical empiricism believed that the scientific method was the way that we come to truth. And eventually people said, well, can you use the scientific method to show that the scientific method is how we come to truth? No, you cannot. So you have to presuppose that the scientific method is how we come to truth. And then if we presuppose that, if we just all agree on that, then logical, uh, logical empiricism, then it can develop from there. So the point is, well, then really what you're doing is you have a set of presuppositions and everybody, as uh, Quine said, we're in our different webs of belief. And so the coherency, the co coherency theory of truth or the co how it coheres together, that's the only way then we can look at paradigms. And that's the whole breakdown. This is what leads to postmodernism in the 1950s and 60s is because the presupposition that there is objective truth through the scientific method requires us to presuppose the scientific method. And if that's the case, then the scientific method cannot be the basis of truth because we have to presuppose it to then create a paradigm in which that's the case. Do you see what I'm saying? So that's the breakdown in philosophy at the beginning of the 20th century. And that's what the, the whole, uh, you know, logical empirical tradition falls apart. And this was the whole hope of people who are these analytically minded or the Anglosphere of philosophy, what's called the analytic tradition versus the continental tradition of European philosophy, where the European, the Europeans, uh, what's called continental philosophy, they move into what's called German idealism, romanticism, and then phenomenology, because they believe since Kant broke down our ability to just observe the world, because Kant, if Kant was right, he's saying, Really, look, you cannot make the objective claim that you absolutely know what is out there because it's the mixture of sense perception in our a priori categories. So therefore, Kant ends the knowability of the external world. All we can know is the sense impression that the external world puts on us. And that's what then science is looking at. Science is looking not at the external world per se, but the external world as impressed on us through our senses. And so Kant then he fractured philosophy. This is what this is why Kant is such a big deal in, in philosophy, because this Kantian what's called the Kantian distinction, right? The distinction between the thing that is and what we can know. There was that broke into two schools of philosophy: the British empiricism, where okay, we're, we're maybe we can't totally know the external world, but we can know the most we can know about the world is through the scientific method. And then you have the European tradition that said, okay, so we can't know the world in of itself. So I guess the only thing we can know is ourselves. And so we begin to then analyze ourselves. We begin to analyze our own experience. This is the development of what's called romanticism, German idealism, and then phenomenology. So the European school, the continental school of philosophy is, is much more interested in the self and how we come to universal claims, where the analytic tradition, all the Anglosphere, is interested in using science to then come to universal claims. So these then break down. That's why philosophy sort of came to a screeching halt, in some some would say, during the 20th century, because how can either one of us now begin to make universal claims? And according to the pragmatist, somebody like uh, 
like Quine, he would say, well, the problem is what it seems to be is that we're all just in webs of association. We're in paradigms. All of us are existing in different paradigms, which are built on presuppositions that we have, whether we're conscious of it or not. And that presupposition then informs how we're going to interpret all information. And yeah, so one thing I want to, so I think what might be might be difficult for some people to wrap their heads around is they say, okay, they might say, well, okay, I, I agree we have to presuppose uh, the existence of logic, uh, math, et cetera, to even have the, co- I mean, how can you have a conversation based on logic and reason unless you have presupposed logic and reason? Um, I think where some people might, and maybe maybe we can get to sort of what the definition of God would be in this context, because mm-hmm. a lot of people might say, okay, why does that mean I got to believe a guy with a beard mm-hmm. and a staff commanded that stuff to exist? Why do I have to believe that that thing is this thing called God? Why can't I believe mm-hmm. it's any number of things that that came and so maybe if you define God here is is God just defined as that which created all of that? You're right. Um, so he's more than that, and so everything that I laid out, uh, the atheist then that I'm that I'm again uh, arguing with, if they're if they're sophisticated and they basically know everything that I just laid out. What their attack would be, and this would be the most logical and and accurate way that they could respond, is to say, look, okay, I'm presupposing all these different things, all these non-physical things that my worldview as an atheist actually can't account for. But you're doing the same thing by just presupposing God, and then you're saying you can justify all these things within the Godhead where I'm just going to presuppose all these different things. And so really we're in the same boat. He's going to say, I observe them. We can, we can tell that these things are real logic and math. You're saying it yeah. came from spaghetti monster in the sky or whatever they might say, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so they would say, yeah, I believe in logic and I can't, if they're again, philosophically astute, they'd say, yeah, you're right. I can't philosophically ground or justify logic, but, um, I believe in logic because I see the utility of logic and I see how it's working in the world. Same thing with the scientific method, same thing with numbers, same thing with mathematics. And so they would say the utility of these things are why, why I believe them to be true. And that's why then the transcendental argument of God is moving truth claims from correspondence, which is this inductive platform that everybody who's observing the world is presupposing all these categories and they're participating in this inductive process that I'm going to observe the world and come to truth claims. Um, That is a correspondential truth claim. Whereas the uh, coherency theory of truth, the coherency theory of truth is interested in the paradigm itself. And so that's what then the tag argument is trying to do is trying to, if we're all putting our head through a window called a paradigm, and then we're looking onto reality through that window, The goal of the transcendental argument is to tap the atheist on his shoulder and then both of us step back from our paradigm, step back from the window so we can see the window frame, so we can see what exactly we're looking through and and to then uh, argue that, look, um, yes, we can look both through our, our windows and we can then have all these corresponding truths, but we need to then get out of those windows and find find an objective and a uh, a, a way in which we can analyze our platforms equally. And that is then what is called the coherency theory of truth, which one coheres more and which one then does justify. So they can't then once we move the theory of truth to coherency, they can't just say, look, I'm going to presuppose a thousand different things and you're going to presuppose one thing and they're equal because based on the coherency theory of truth, 
their worldview is less illogical than my worldview because my worldview can justify things and I'm making fewer presuppositional leaps, right? I'm making a presuppositional leap that God exists. They're making the same jump that I'm making that God exists, but they're making it a thousand times with numbers, with logic, with the law of identity, with all this different stuff. And so based on the law or the coherency theory of truth, then their worldview is unjustifiable and therefore has to be less true than a worldview that is more justifiable. Now, this does not prove Christianity. All this argument is doing is showing that there has to be a non-changing precondition for all these non-changing, non-physical presuppositions that we all hold. That could then be God, but that doesn't say the Christian God or the Muslim God or the Hindu God. We haven't got into that yet. We were just saying that there has to be something that's non-created, eternal, that created these things that we then can participate in. Does it even presuppose uh, monotheism necessarily? Could it, before you get into that, you know, before we went into that to try and justify which religion has that right, could you presuppose six gods did this together as much as one God or uh, four computer programmers. If you're, you know, uh, we live in a simulation kind of person. Could, could you all, could you all sort of fill in your blank with whatever you want and still agree on the same uh, idea that these are presupposed and, and something created those, those precepts. Yeah, uh, that would at least be, they would have somebody who believes Accepting in that premise, would be able least, to yeah. defeat the argue. Yeah, the, the, they would be able to defeat the atheist based on that worldview because even though they believe in six spaghetti monsters, the six spaghetti monsters that are eternal can then philosophically justify more accurately the existence of these things that we believe, as opposed to somebody who's not making a claim about it. The atheist generally will speaking again if they're very reluctant to change their opinion, will just say, "Well, uh, I don't see the utility." And you having less presuppositions than me having more presuppositions. Hmm. But again, philosophically speaking, there's only two ways to know something is true. And so they are forfeiting in regards to the coherency theory of truth, their ability to be more true than the guy with six spaghetti monsters. Just kind of going further on, on this question, like does, okay. So does presupposing God as the creator of logic, reason, math, everything, everything that we presuppose to even have a conversation really, or to do anything here. Um, does it, does it presuppose that that has to be the original creator? Could God have a God who has a God who has a God who has a God? I mean, how, how far back, I mean, or, or is that just unknowable? I mean, I, I, maybe these are like, uh, you know, atheist kindergarten type questions, but that's what I'm trying to sort of get at here. What people yeah. might think. So, uh, two problems with the idea is one's an infinite regress, uh, which Aristotle dealt with in regards to the unmoved mover that, uh, we can't just have an un- infinite regress of causality. And that's why he came to the conclusion that there has to be an unmoved mover, an uncaused cause. Again, that's just a very abstract way to At say. At some point, right. God, we're just. Yeah, God, basically, right. something eternal it could be has six to gods not be down caused. the line, I suppose, but something would have had to have been that original unmoved mover, which is what you would call the God. The God, yeah. And so the other point, so again, logically, an infinite regress doesn't make sense. And that, so Aristotle, the Greeks saw that. And that's within really coming up with a Godhead to understand and deal with that. That's where Christianity, Neoplatonism, Stoicism, uh, all these different, you know, Talmudic Judaism. We got Islam comes in the 620s with Muhammad. So, um, yeah, the unmoved mover, 
that's basically the state of philosophy with Aristotle's, hey, we can't just have an infinite regress and a non a non-theistic worldview because then there is no ultimate cause. The other point in regards to God having a God having a God is by definition, none of those would be God. Because the category of God itself is eternal, uncreated, omnipresent, omniscient. And so a God that has a God, we're no longer talking about God. God. You're talking about something created, which is no, it's a category error. The category of God is uncreated. So if we're talking about God, God can't have a creator because God, by definition, is uncreated. If he did, then he's not God and wouldn't be meeting that definition. He's not God. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so that would be the two ways. I that guess from misunderstanding, that, you could go into like sort of. I'm not trying to do this here. I'm just saying hypothetically because this would be a whole another show. Probably you could go into well. Then how do we know your Christian God is the God and not a created by some other God? But that's a totally different subject. But you could you could go into that and ask that line of questioning, but still maybe agree. I still have to presuppose a God somewhere at the beginning of this line of succession. Right. I guess right. And, and that's really where the transcendental argument goes, is it just continues this continual line of thought. And even if we were done with the atheists, and so, um, you know, the atheists eventually would have to recognize that the, uh, if I'm using a coherency theory of truth, basically all they're out is they have to reject the coherency theory of truth, which is not, again, it's not a strong position on their part, because this is where philosophy is basically agreed. And that's where contemporary philosophy um, doesn't make ultimate truth claims. And so the whole point of philosophy is these coherency theories of truth. We're all in paradigms. And now that's the only point of philosophy is to compare paradigms because it doesn't make universal claims anymore, like empiricism or, or you know, the pragmatic score, the deconstruct. It's all falling apart. And so we're all then in different paradigms. And so the only thing we can do is analyze the coherency and the justificatory basis of our paradigms. So eventually the atheist, uh, which again, hardly ever happens. So the video that I created is like uh, a utopian ideal example of an atheist who's actually following what you're saying and actually is searching for truth and then understands and then will will change their opinion. Most times it never, never goes that way. And uh, th- usually they'll rage quit or just give up or, or just say that you're doing the same thing I'm doing, which uh, I'm not denying that I'm presupposing God. But what I'm saying is my presupposition of God then lays forth a worldview which we are both sharing. They, me and the being honest, like along the way and following this this sort of chain of logic, do do they eventually have to at least get to a point of if they maybe they feel uncomfortable calling it God, but they almost have to agree to the same thing and you know you'd have to call it maybe maybe they just don't like it, it makes it feel like you to say that, but eventually they would have to concede the same concept, which is again which is what you would call God anyway. Yeah, and that's really where you see contemporary use of the of the framework of consciousness. So uh, people will now say, well, it's just consciousness itself, this ethereal sort of self-awareness within the oh, universe. Or, that's or, the basis for logic. That's the basis for numbers. That's I'm con- I'm a conscious entity. That's you hear a lot of the universe talk, in. you know, like, oh, the yeah. universe is doing this. The universe is doing that. So you're basically saying the same thing. You just don't like calling yeah. it God for whatever reason. Yeah, a- and... That worldview, if I just make it consciousness, at least that's a better position than the atheist. You see, the point is that the atheist has no justificatory basis, and that's the problem is if the atheist is going to be totally consistent, the only thing they can do is say that I can't, there is no such thing as truth, because they can't make a universal claim based on their ever-changing worldview. 
because the world itself is constantly changing and truth definitionally in their worldview is the scientific method, which is the observe observation of a world that's constantly changing. So if they're going to be consistent, the best they can say is I use the scientific method as a probabilistic metric, but yeah, ultimately we can never, ever, ever make a universal truth claim, which is itself a universal truth claim. And that's where then the whole worldview falls apart. So that, so you can't, there is no out. If you begin with the atheist worldview and you, you're dealing with somebody who can knows phil- philosophy and theology, you're stuck. You can't actually get out of your worldview because it's self-defeating. And so the only then the only line, and that's where my video ends, is to presuppose a God. Now, orthodoxy and why it it and again we see my, myself, Jay Dyer, Father Deacon, Doctor Ananias, why we like the tag is because Orthodox theology is incredibly philosophical, if you will, in a way. And of course, it's theology. So I'm not I'm not trying to uh, demean orthodoxy to a philosophical position because we absolutely would consider that a lesser position, but um, it can deal with all philosophies and all comers. And so orthodoxy then would, would fare very fine if we continue the tag argument. Now from atheists, we're just all dealing with people who presuppose a transcendental entity. Okay, now we all presuppose a transcendental entity, and the question is, how do we know that entity? How do we come to understand our relationship to that entity? And then it gets into revelation. And so if you then believe in a cosmic God, and I ask you, how do you come to know that cosmic God? And you say, well, I took you know five grams of psilocybin and I saw him. I would say, okay, so it's a subjective experience. It's relative. It's only, it's only true for you. No, no, it's, it's true. It's an objectively. Okay, well, then how can you show me that that's an objective truth? Take the mushrooms. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got, and then it's I could have my own works, experience right. where now it's, it, yeah, it's a three-headed entity yeah. or something. Like, I could have my own. So that's so not objective. One guy's going to see, you know, the, the flying spaghetti monster, maybe. Another guy's going to see the, you know, the three-horned stag. A or unicorn yeah. or something. A talking right. unicorn, yeah. And th- so then it's like, well, okay, well, which one is it? Um, and so the question then using again, continuing this transcendental argument for God using transcendental categories, the f- category, the transcendental categories of philosophy. Now I'm dealing with other theistic positions. How do we know that to be the case? So if I'm talking to a Nordic pagan, which at least would be in a better position than an atheist. Okay. How do we know, um, that all these gods exist? Well, you know, our ancestors talked to this tree and this thing happened and and then this God's of the water and this God's of the sea. Okay, so so your gods then are limited. I mean, your gods only have powers within certain domains, you know, and so we can get into the logical inconsistency of the concept of divinity itself within a pagan worldview. Because where is the ultimate God? Where is the God that created? Where is the, again, the unmoved mover? asking the same questions at the end of the day. We're, we're asking the same questions. Now let's presuppose we're talking to another monotheist, whether they believe in the universe, maybe they believe in a panpsychic structure, maybe they believe in consciousness, maybe they're Muslim. Maybe, again, as Orthodox, we would say even Catholicism is basically in the same, it's, they're in the same hole that the Muslim is regarding to some of their scholastic presuppositions of philosophy and theology. So um, as an Orthodox Christian, what we're trying to do is then say, well, I believe the world is this way. 
due to revelation. Now, obviously, a lot of people are going to hear that. Well, that means I have to presuppose your Bible. But the, the whole thing about this coherency theory of truth and the state of philosophy itself is we all have to presuppose something or we can't even have an experience. So what are you? We all ultimately have to make a, a leap, a presuppositional leap of faith, if you will. We all have to do that. Every single person to make a truth claim, whether it's a leap so, of faith in a, a specific story or a specific explanation, or it's a leap of faith in something pressed a button that blew us up and made it. I mean, there's a leap of faith somewhere in there, no matter what. Right, that, And that's what the big bang is. So even if you were going to take back the atheist world, you said, oh, you know, because that's why it was so appealing for so many people for so many years is, oh, we're going to do away with all that presuppositional crap or God. And so, the, you know, the universe, it just exploded and it's been on this process and we can run it from there. But, and then the question is, so, so you're making a presuppositional belief that in a single point, for no particular reason, the entire universe, which you, which again, they, I do not believe is eternal or infinite because I believe those descriptors are only in relationship to God. And so anything that's created and it has a beginning point can't be infinite or eternal by definition. And so again, I think it's a uh, it's a total uh, rhetorical sleight of hand when science talks about an infinite universe or Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye because they also agree in a beginning point. Yeah, which which one? is Therefore, it? by definition, is not infinite. <laughs> it can't be. And, and if it's expanding, it could be moving, then and they, what you know, then it's not infinite either because it's expanding. So there's a lot of a lot right. of questions, and that's why the the universe, the material itself, is their mm-hmm. god, right? Because they begin to associate the qualities. Mm-hmm. And attributes that we attribute to God to and they'll creation almost personify itself. it sometime. Well, the universe does this, yes. the universe does that, and now we're almost—they're almost not even atheists anymore. They just have switched the word around. Um, exactly, and that's what we're seeing in in the world itself in this movement towards. Oh well, you are stardust. What is this? This is a spiritual interpretation from a atheistic, uh, you know, veneration of matter. They, they, we are, and this is where I believe in in some of the. Um, religious scholars, you know, they talked about as we are as homo religious and that we're not just homo sapiens or homo sapiens same. We're not just thinking species. And again, I, I do not believe in macro evolution. So that's, so I'm, I'm saying this as not somebody who believes that we're homo sapiens coming from chimpanzees or anything, but just to use their own worldview, um, people who did, you know, we're, we're, if anything, the, one of the main attributes about us is the continuation of these sort of religious phenomenon as a species. We're always, our, our narratives, our mythologies, our cultures are always reaching for a transcendence. And really, the one thing that's unchanging is that we are religious by orientation, by nature, and that whether you're atheist, they, that's why you see them doing the exact same thing. They're calling it not religion, but they worship it in the same way. And they use the same attributes and the same characteristics. And they're making all these universal truth claims about something that based on their own worldview, they can't make universal and truth suddenly claims. that's how we make a vaccine into a sacrament. I mean, that's... <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, um, so if we're continuing this transcendental argument, I would like to get into the Trinity and why the Trinity is actually the trump card in regards to then talking about the other monotheisms. Because... Um, often, especially for people who, if we're, if anybody's who's listening to this conversation for the first time, it is probably a little overwhelming. There's a lot of jargon, a lot of different concepts being thrown at you, but often people will say, oh, those Christians, they believe in three gods. Uh, they believe, you know, they worship three entities. 
And um, I want to maybe uh, explain that a little bit and clarify the Trinity and the Trinitarian theology and how that relates to the tag argument and how as an Orthodox Christian, we would say this is superior than any other conception of the Godhead. So um, <clears throat> first, um, whenever we're dealing with God and we're making what are called cataphatic claims, that is saying what God is. Then there's a form of theology called apophatic, where we're saying what God is not. And so God is not death. God is not totally knowable. God is not, um, you know, uh, an ideology. These, these are, would be apophatic claims. We're saying what God is not. If we say God is love, God is unity, God is merciful, these are cataphatic, not apophatic. So we're saying what God is. So one of the problems of monotheisms is how do you, know the cataphatic attributes of God. How do you know what God is? And then almost all monotheisms would say, well, based on revelation, based on scriptural revelation. Okay, so tradition. Um, we would then say, if God is so, for example, in, uh, in Islam, in Neoplatonism, and really what developed in Western uh, Christianity as Catholicism or Thomistic theology, God is pure unity. And this is the basis of their worldviews. God is one. God is one. God is one. And so the question then, if God is God, can God be more than one? And within their worldview, that God cannot. Because God is, by, essentially, by definition, oneness. And so if God is oneness, then the category of oneness is actually more dominant than God himself. God is in a box called unity and oneness, and God must always exist there, because if he gets outside that box, then he's no longer pure unity, pure God. And so the monotheisms itself then have a problem in regards to the cataphatic descriptions of God and God's unity, because it puts God in a box. The Trinity maintains the apophatic, the unknowability of the Godhead. And so let me explain then the, the Trinity in regards to the, what we would call the hypostatic uh, persons. And so it gets back to the philosophical traditions of the one and the many. And so you and I both have human nature, the one human nature, but we are part of the uh, multiplicity of representations of human nature. There's multiple humans in the world. We both share the same nature. There's Shih Tzus, there's Pit Bulls, there's Wolves, there's German Shepherds. They're all dogs. There's only one dog essence, and yet there's multiple types of dogs, and there's something that unifies all these things and makes it not a cat, not a tiger, and not a dolphin, but it makes it a dog. And so the Greeks were trying to do, deal with this in what's called the one and the many. Which one's more real? All the different manifestations of dogs or the category of dogness itself? Which one's more real? Plato obviously says dogness is more real. Aristotle says the multiplicity is more real, right? Because of their precepts, because of the starting points that we just spoke about. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? And so the, Aristotle's looking at the world. He's saying, look, I see multiple types of dogs. I'm going to begin there. That's more real. And then, it, and then all those multiplicities lead to some sort of unity. Plato says, no, it's the ideal form. It's the category of dog essence, dog nature, dog substance. And then it bleeds into the multiple forms. Christianity um, is making the same claim in regards to the Godhead. There's only one God, but it's three persons. 
if God, the Father, is God, and he begets himself, it would also have to be God by definition. Just like you, and I don't know if you have children, or if you do have children, um, that child in your wife's stomach or whoever, it has human nature before it's even, it's even born. And when it is born, it's fully human. And it's fully human because both of you guys are human. And yeah, it's not an adult. It doesn't know mathematics. But by definition, in regards to the category of essence, nature, and substance, it is human. If God begets himself, by definition, that would have to also be God. And if God proceeds from himself, by definition, that would also have to be God. And so then we're dealing with one nature, one essence of God, but three persons, three in in three hypostatic manifestations of that essence, right? And so it's not three gods. It's one God, one divine nature, but it's three persons. And so it's one like God a triangle. God in three forms, essentially. Yes. And what that does and why that's so superior, again, based on revelation of the Old Testament, New Testament, that's where this is coming from, this particular structure of the Godhead. Obviously, Islam rejects the Trinity because they reject the divinity of the Logos. So they only have the Father, they only have Allah, they only have a singular unity concept of God, which most religions have. Christianity is the only religion that's making a claim in regards to one essence, three persons. And, and Pythagoras talked about how three was the first number of multiplicity. And so what Christianity is doing is claiming that God is both one and multiple. That g- there is not a category, there's not a box you can put the Holy Trinity in. Because he overcomes all boxes. For example, in, in Islam, Allah. Can Allah become material? No. Can Allah, he's eternal, right? Can he become temporal? No. We would say, yeah, that's why he's not God. Which is why I guess Muhammad, even in God their own story, Muhammad couldn't be God. He could just be a prophet or something. Right. Because he's created because he's in space and time, because he's a human. Christianity is 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 dealing with all these problems, right? It's not like these people are were uneducated or, or dumb. They're aware of all this stuff when they're forming the theology, when they're looking at the scriptures, when Christ is even talking to the apostles. So the <laughs> Trinity, funny how there's a lot of these like gotcha atheist arguments. And then you like find some scripture and you're like some old writing and you're like, Oh, they, they weren't about this 800 years ago. You know, like they were having these same yeah. conversations then. And we kind of like to think it's like our, our modern, like enlightened minds that are coming up with these atheist arguments. Cause now we know science or something, but it's like, no, people were saying this stuff a thousand years ago or whatever. Exactly. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there, there is plenty of Greek philosophers that were atheists, you know. So, the Trinity, why it's superior, is that it's basically arguing that the knowability of God and the, and, the God, and the Godhead is coming through one person, the Logos, which is, in our worldview, the unity God that all these other religions are talking about. That the Logos is the unity of the metaphysical reality, space and time, logic, numbers, archetypes, but then it also incarnated into space and time because it is through the Logos. It is through Jesus Christ how we get to the Father. It is through Jesus Christ, the Logos, how we get to understand what the Godhead is, what the nature of God is. And so because of that, it maintains the unknowability of the Father. There is no cataphatic thing we can accurately say that the Father's essence is. And this gets mm-hmm. back to what orthodoxy calls the essence energy distinction. You we see, if I'm Muslim that, or that's, even that's the level, that's the layer or the formation of God that is that is just beyond human comp- the level of human comprehension. 
Yes. And so all the, so like Islam, if, if we're saying that God is unity, God is oneness, God is oneness. Well, then we're making a cataphatic claim in regards to the essence of God. God's essence is Which unity. Says, you know, God at the same level. God could go, no God, I guess. If, exactly. In Orthodox, you say, whoa, 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 we make no claims about the essence of God other than what's in scripture and that there's three persons in one essence. That's the only claim we make about the essence of God. There's one essence and there's three persons of God. But um, we do not make any claim about the essence itself as being love. Like we don't say God, we, we can say God is love, but that we have to, it's always couched within this understanding of the energy essence distinction. So in orthodoxy, love is not the essence of God. Love is an energy that is natural to divinity itself. And so we believe in all these uncreated energies, logic, reason, honor, glory, mercy, compassion, love, truth. All these things are energetic realities that pre-exist creation, that in fact were necessary for creation itself because they're natural to divine nature. And that we come to know that that's the case through the Logos. And that then is why the Logos became man inside space-time. The Logos is the eternal word of God. The Logos also became within its own creation. It became a man within its own creation demonstrating that the Trinitarian Godhead, there is not a single thing you can say that it can or can't do. You can't say, oh, well, uh, God can't die. You're right. Divine nature can't die. But our logos took on a human nature and allowed the human nature to die attached to divine nature so that men following the divine nature, again, this process of theosis engaging in these uncreated energies, you won't be able to die because God's already plowed that field, right? If it's a cornfield, he's already plowed that path by taking on human nature and then allowing human nature to die. But because God can't die, human nature doesn't ultimately die because he is a person, is has both those things, fully human, fully God. And therefore he can't die. He takes on human nature. And now there's a pathway for us created entities into eternity. And that is then the orthodox doctrine of theosis is that we become divinized. We become more like God the more we engage in mercy and compassion and love. The more we emulate Jesus Christ, essentially, which I guess exactly if that's what you're aiming to do. And that's what exactly, exactly. And that's what, and this was the original theology. So everything, somebody might be listening to this and like, my God, how this is, this doesn't sound like Christianity at all. No, brothers, this is actually the original theology. This whole thing that God just came here to bleed on a cross for you, that is the Western version, which again, tried to get people to submit based on the idea of having the suffering Christ as the primary image. And that's why the West has the crucifix. Catholicism privileges the crucifix, where the original church orthodoxy privileges the what's called the pantocrator, which is the human Christ, Jesus Christ as a man in heaven. The idea is that human nature, that Christ right now is inside of eternity, sitting next to the Father, but he has male genitalia. He has a full human body. That, that being a man is actually higher than being an angel. And that was the point of Christianity. That's the point of the incarnation. That's the point of creation itself, is to allow entities like you and me being made in the image of God to, with our free will, which only God has free will, to choose if we want to love him, because that's what love is. Love necessitates free will. So the whole point of creation is not that God created us to be damned or to send us to hell. 
Orthodoxy says, no, no, no. The opposite of these energies, truth, falsehood. Falsehood is not a reality in itself. It has no positive existence. It's the absence of an energy. And that's how, just, just like the law of thermodynamics, cold is a term we use to describe the absence of thermodynamic energy, of heat. There's only heat. There's only energy. Thermodynamic energy. The absence of that is a term we call coldness, which is just describing the absence of something. That's what evil is. That's what uh, hate is. That's what falsehood is. That's what darkness is. We do not have a dialectical tension between the opposite of God's energies. They are just the absence of God itself, which therefore is death, which therefore is darkness, which therefore is non-being. And so, the whole spiritual war then is trying to get us to participate in the opposite of God's energies so that we become just as dead as I would argue the uh, created entities, demons, Satan, are also just as dead because their transgression happened in eternity. And so they already know their fate. And so we then being higher than the angels, being higher than the demons, are trying to get us to do the exact same thing because only man can participate in theosis. Well, David, it certainly uh, certainly gives people a lot to think about, especially if someone came into this one as as an atheist. So I'd be I'd be really curious to to hear their thoughts by the the time they get to this point. But uh, if any of you out there, we're going to wrap up the main show. If any of you out there are interested in this type of content, this type of material, David's doing this a couple times a week uh, over at Church of Eternal Logos. So why don't you just let everybody know where they can find your material? My listeners are pretty smart; they can probably use YouTube and figure it out. But I know you have a, a member site as well, so uh, feel free to plug away on everything you got going on. Okay, so yeah, if you'd like to hear more, uh, again, it was a bit all over the place, but um, I basically talk a lot about these things over on Church of the Eternal Logos, and then you can find me on Instagram and various platforms at D-P-H-A-R-O-Y, or just search David Patrick Carey. Um, and then I also have uh, uh, memberships for an exclusive video library. So I have half and half videos and content that's exclusive just for members. I also run a fitness membership of uh, teaching guys how to do hypertrophy lifting and build muscle tissue and build their bodies. Um, and then we have a premium members group. Uh, where we uh, they get all of that, plus uh, we meet twice a month for uh, a couple hours of just talking about anything and everything that certainly would not be conducive on uh, some of the mainstream platforms. So uh, that's basically what I do. And then I'm also trying to finish up my PhD and, and get my dissertation written and turn that into a book, which is uh, actually on transhumanism. So uh, my, what my academic research has nothing to do with anything we've talked about <laughs> in, this is in just this my presentation today. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you guys are interested, uh, please go over to Church of the Eternal Logos. And uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, you can go to my website at davidpatrickcarry.com or churchoftheeternallogos.com. Takes you to the same place. And uh, feel free to shoot an email or ask any questions, and I'll uh, get back to you as soon as I can. All right, friends. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Patrick Harry and the conversation didn't end there. It never does. We went even deeper in the smoke-filled room where David dove into more detail about his ayahuasca experience that finally sent him all the way over to becoming an Orthodox Christian. Really just a fascinating, fascinating conversation. We then discussed further the concept of logismi, logismoi, different ways to pronounce it. It's a concept to touch on with Father Turbo Qualls, and we dug into that a little bit deeper before some weird internet issues came up. You'll hear me explain that uh, in the extended version of this episode, of course, 
every supporter of the show gets extended early access to every single episodes. You're not getting the full conversation unless you are a supporter of this program, either on Patreon, Subscribestar, Rockfin. I give you all the options. All the links are available at markclair.com. That's M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. By the way, don't forget to support our great sponsors, Fox and Sons Coffee, foxandsons.com. Use discount code MCS for 15% off your order. Until next time, my friends, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and buenas noches. (laughs) 